uh, with me. Let us pray. O Lord, your, O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and in love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It'll be here on the screen as, uh, as well. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God to you with superior speech or wisdom, for I decided to know, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were made not with pers- persuasive words of wisdom, but, or with a demonst- but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are being destroyed. But we speak God's wisdom, a hidden mystery, which God decreed before the angels for our glory and which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor human heart conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by, wis- by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually, they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they themselves are subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The written word of God for the people of God. Thanks for God. You may be seated. So we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for three weeks now. Um, Last week's message, the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. We're we're in the season of Epiphany. And what what Epiphany is all about is the revelation of God. Jesus comes as the full revelation of God, the fullness of God on earth. What is God like? Look to Jesus. That is what Epiphany is all about. And so we talked last week about how the revelation of God in Jesus reveals that God uses that which seems like weakness to the world to, in order to reveal the folly of the world's wisdom. So the, the weakness of, of God is stronger than the wisdom of the world, we heard Paul say. Jesus, the Christ, in his extreme humility and his vulnerability, things that seem like foolishness to the world, Jesus confounds the world's wisdom because it creates a community of people who have been mended together and living, living so that our goal as a people is to do something that seems like foolishness to the world. That is to be identified as the Beatitudes tell us, to be identified with the poor, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, 
Those who are humble and vulnerable, that's who Jesus calls us to identify with. And it feels and sounds like foolishness to the world, but it's God's wisdom. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians ends with Paul pointing to the Corinthians themselves as a demonstration of God at work. He, he explains to them, think about most of you. Most of you, according to human standards, are not all that great, <laughs> not all that wise, not all that powerful, not all that wealthy. According to the world standards, you're not much of anything, Paul says, but according to God, according to God, you are his body, revealing Christ in the world. That is what Paul tells them. And so he kind of picks on them a little bit, but, but in a good way to say that this is good. This is how God works in the world. And it's evident by the fact that God has been at work in you as a body. And now at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we hear Paul say, and me, look at me. He points to himself, he's pointed to them, and now he's pointing back to himself as an example of God using that which seems like weakness, that which seems like foolishness in the world, to reveal God's power, to reveal God's spirit at work in the world, to reveal God's wisdom. He says, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty words of wisdom. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. My speech and preaching were not with plausible words of philosophical wisdom. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not like the philosophers of, of your Greek world. Remember, Paul is among Jews and Greeks. We talked about this some last week. The Greeks are especially fond of lofty speech, convincing logic. That's what they like. They want to hear that. They want to be convinced by what you have to say. They want to be uh, enamored by what it is that's coming out of your mouth. They want their teachers and their philosophers to be impressive and charismatic with their words and their proclamation of what they say is philosophically true. Paul says, that's not me. That's just not who I am. He's already made it a central claim of the gospel that God, God's wisdom is not like the wisdom that you're used to seeing, not like the philosophical wisdom of your day, of the world, not like the wisdom of the world that depends on smooth talk and clever logic. Now, for those of us who have relied heavily on Paul and his work, his writings in order to understand Christian faith, which if you depend on the New Testament in order to understand what it means to be a Christian, then you really are depending on Paul. Much of, of the New Testament is written by Paul. Much of our theological understanding of the world and of, of what Jesus comes to do comes from Paul. Paul's Paul's work is saturating our New Testament. And so if we, if we know anything about Christian faith, it's often because we've, we've understood it through the lens of Paul and the way that God used Paul in the world. 1 Corinthians itself is an example of Paul's talent as a writer. He's very good at writing. He's extremely clever at proclaiming the gospel. If you read some commentaries on Paul's work, you'll find that Paul's Greek, his grammar and writing skills are as good as anybody. In his day, he's very good at writing. He's, he's really good. So is Paul just being overly uh, uh, humble or modest whenever he says that, look at me. I'm not that impressive of a speaker. I'm not that impressive. I, I came to you and I was in fear. Maybe he's just being overly modest. I think here's my theory. Paul's a great writer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a great speaker. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to, 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 to the contrary, that Paul is actually not a great speaker. In 2 Corinthians, another letter that Paul is going to write to this same church, Paul's writing again to this same church, and there, he's addressing some of the same issues. 
Apparently, by the time 2 Corinthians is written, not a whole lot has changed. 1 Corinthians is written to this church that has been divided, and, and he's calling for unity. And they seem to have missed the point of the gospel in a lot of ways. And so when Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, it doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed. It seems like some things have actually kind of gotten worse. There's apparently some new preachers who have come around in Corinth with some distortions of the gospel message. They're trying to turn the church against Paul because, the, because, because people are saying, well, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but that doesn't line up with what Paul taught us about the gospel. And so they're talking badly about Paul and describing Paul as this, uh, as this guy who's just not that great, really. According to Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians, these new preachers are saying that Paul's bodily presence, his physical presence when he's in town, his speeches, they're weak, they're incomprehensible, despite his letters being pretty strong and heavy. So they, that's what they're saying about Paul, is that, yeah, whenever he writes to you, it sounds like he's got a lot of authority. But when he's here, think about it. His presence is weak. He's, he's not that great of a speaker. It's really hard to understand what he's even trying to say. So, I mean, it, it seems that Paul is, is willing to admit, you know, I, I'm just not a great speaker. I don't have a very strong bodily presence. But that is a good thing for the gospel. Paul can sit down and write a, a good letter with some good logic and and all, but whenever it comes to public speaking, he seems to struggle. Besides this admission from Paul and his struggle as a speaker, we can look to Luke's account of when Paul is in Corinth. Back when we were in the book of Acts last year, we were working our way through that, the book of Acts. We, I preached a sermon on when Paul is in Corinth. It's in chapter 18 of Acts. Uh, Paul goes there um, in, into Corinth, and he is, um, it's just after he was in Athens, as a matter of fact. He's in Athens, and you'll remember when he's in Athens, he's debating with the philosophers of the day. He's debating with these professional speakers, people who are really good at describing what it is that they believe and what they are saying is a philosophical truth. And Paul there does his best to proclaim the gospel to these wise men, right, uh, these philosophers in Athens, and they pick on him. Some of them are interested in what he has to say, but most of them are making fun of him, saying he's a madman. This message that you're proclaiming that a savior of the world could be killed and crucified, that's just absurd to them. They make fun of him for being a madman. He leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and he begins in the synagogue where the Jewish people would have been. And he's trying to logic with them on why Jesus must be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And, and he just doesn't have any luck there. He just can't convince anybody of it. Everything about his ministry in Corinth seems to, to suggest that he just wasn't that successful he gets to the point where he gets so frustrated with the Jewish people there that he, he, he brushes the dirt off his feet and he makes this proclamation, I'm done with you. I'm done with the Jews. I'm just going to go to the Gentiles now. Now what we, we learn is, is that that's not true at all. It, he says that in his anger, but he um, constantly is reaching out to the Jewish community and, and seeking and trying to explain to them why Jesus is their Messiah. And on top of all of this, the Greeks aren't very receptive of what Paul has to say in Corinth at first either. Um, the Jews and the, and the Jews and Paul are arguing and fighting, and it caused this ruckus. And, and the Greek people there in Corinth have to get involved. And there's this trial, and 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 um, actually the, the the Greek folks actually think that it's the Jewish folks' fault that all this ruckus is happening. And so they they beat up the the leader of the synagogue, the person, one of the people who had rejected Paul, actually. And so Paul is, he's, he's having to hide at points and times. He's worried that his own life is at danger. So when he says to the Corinthians in the text that we've just read, that I came to you in fear and trembling. He's not, again, he's not being overly modest. The record shows that he was fearful. He had every right to be scared while he was in Corinth. People were attacking people because of the gospel. 
He has every reason to be fearful of his life, yet he leaves the door open for any Jew or Greek that may be drawn to the message of Jesus while he's in Corinth. And, and God begins to work. He, he proclaims, I'm done. I give up. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know how else to proclaim it to you, to describe it to you. And he ends up moving right next door. You'll remember the, the name of my sermon that day that I preached on it was Love is an Open Door. That's ultimately what it's about is that Jesus opened, or that, that Paul, he, even despite saying that he was giving up on others, giving up on the Jews and, and all, he goes and he takes a hum, more humble posture. He leaves the door open. He, he allows anyone who's interested in hearing the gospel to come to him. And out of that, the spirit moves in Corinth. And a, and a church is planted. The church that he is writing to in First and Second Corinthians is, is planted. His arguments for the gospel, they, they didn't seem to be working whenever he was trying to depend on his own logic. But as soon as he said, all right, that's it. I don't know what else to do. The spirit began to, to work. His, his logic wasn't convincing. His reasoning, his apologetics, nothing was working. But as soon as he gave up, supposedly, as soon as he gave it up, his posture of humility and results in, in the planting of the Corinthian church. Paul may have struggled with his own words, but when he gives it up, the spirit takes over. He becomes patient and humble. The spirit slowly and surely begins to move in the Corinthians. Maybe it takes longer than Paul had imagined, but it happens. Not only were those in the Corinthian church of lowly status and weak, but also Paul was. Sure, Paul was an intellectual, he was a skilled man when it came to writing. But whenever he was in person, his speech, his words, he, he, he struggled. By all accounts, by all the standards of the world, he was just not that successful. As we learned last week, um, we hear a big part of that is, is that his message itself. The idea that a savior, a messiah, a Christ, an anointed one would be killed as the means by which he brings salvation. That's just absurd. The, the message itself to those that are stuck in the old ways just seems absurd. That's a big part of why Paul's message isn't, isn't coming across well. Even if he was proclaiming it well, perhaps the logic of it for them who are stuck in the old way of thinking, just it doesn't convince them. But, but God begins to, to work in Paul's life and in the life of the Corinthians when Paul gives it up and he allows the Spirit to take over and he has some patience and humility. Paul becomes the perfect candidate for proclaiming this gospel. Again, this gospel seems like weakness. So who would be the best person to proclaim it? But someone who, by all standards of the world, is weak. By all standards of the world, is, is vulnerable and, and not powerful and not wealthy. Who better to proclaim this gospel? You need the, the method, that is the, the proclamation, the speaking, to match the message which is weak, according to human standards. That's really what this is all about, what Paul is saying, is that I ended up being the perfect candidate because of how much I struggled. Because it wasn't me convincing anyone, but it was the Spirit at work among you. That's good. Paul is the perfect candidate. He knows that this message seems like weakness to those in power, the powers and principalities of this world who understand power as being about having the ability to rule over people, over dominating both enemies and citizens. That's what power looks like to the world. But to the message of Jesus, it's about serving and humility and humbleness. You know, this isn't all that new to God. Yeah, we say during Epiphany that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God and that it is something new that God is doing in the world. But ultimately, the method that, that God's choosing, the messenger that, that God is choosing, it's not all that different than what we have in the Old Testament. You know, are you familiar with the Old Testament? 
You know the story of Moses? Moses, the greatest leader of Israel to ever live, struggled with speaking. He was a terrible public speaker. He admits this. He uses this as an excuse. He argues with God, I'm not the one for this because I'm a terrible speaker. I don't do a good job coming up with the words to say that will move people to action. And besides that, I have a stutter as well. I'm not qualified for this role that you have. And so God makes a way, right? He says, I think this is always so funny about the story of Moses. He says, all right, well, fine, let, let Aaron talk for you. And, you know, Aaron does kind of serve as Moses' mouthpiece some. But if you read the whole story of Moses, what you find is that Moses ends up doing most of the talking. That God finds a way to use Moses, this one who supposedly is struggling and speak, speaking. And, and then another hero, maybe you're familiar with Gideon, a little, less, little lesser known hero. He's called by God to lead Israel's army. He points to his own weakness and his own clan's weakness. He says, I'm from the smallest clan and you want me to lead all of your people. He, he says, weak, we are weak. How could I possibly lead your people? He, claim, he, he takes hold of that, that identifier of weakness. And God said, that's exactly what I want. It's exactly what I need. You know the story of them defeating the Philistines? They, they start out with this massive army and they decrease it down to such a small size it seems ridiculous that they would be able to defeat anyone. David, another supposed weakling, in his own father's words, his own father says, oh, that's the, he's the runt of the litter. You, you don't really need to see him, do you? Whenever the, whenever the prophet's there to figure out who it is that God's calling to be their new king. No, it's David who God wants. Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, when they're called by God, they use the same excuse. I can't say the right words. I don't know the right things to say. I can't do it. You you need to find someone else. God says, no, that's exactly who I need. Sapphira and Pua, their midwives who kept Moses safe, who had no power in their society. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth and Naomi, they were women who stuck together. Deborah, the judge and ruler, a woman ruling in that time period. Esther, the Jewish king, queen of an oppressive empire. Countless other women used in the Old Testament times. Weak by the world's standards. Supposedly unwise and unskilled in speech. Used by God because of their humility. Because of their vulnerability. Not despite it, but because of it. These are the types of heroes that God chooses. Heroes that are rejected by the rulers of this world, rejected by the powers and principalities, chosen as salt and light in the world for God's message. Still today, rulers reject the way of Jesus, even those that that claim to be Christians. They reject the way of Jesus, the way of humility and, and humbling themselves. They reject that way. Paul was weak and ineffective by all the world's standards, just like Jesus himself. The way of humility and vulnerability that Jesus demonstrates calls on his followers was rejected by both the Jewish and the Roman leaders of his day, Caiaphas and and Pilate. It's just silliness to them. Even Jesus' own disciples cannot get behind what Jesus is saying, not until he's ascended and they're, they're waiting for the Spirit and the Spirit is poured out. Not until they're dependent on the Spirit are they able to receive what Jesus is saying. Even the church of today sometimes seems to be unable to get behind the message and method of Jesus Unless the Spirit is poured out. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Paul explains that the only way that the story of the gospel makes sense, the only way that Jesus Christ, Messiah crucified, God humbled, stripped, poured out, emptied, the only way that is wisdom is if we flip the world upside down. 
The only way that it makes sense if we reject the world is if we reject the world's way of wisdom and understanding power and allow God's spirit to fill us. Paul says in verse 11 that the only way we know God's wisdom is if we surrender to God's spirit. As long as we are depending on our own words of wisdom and our own logical discourse, we are simply getting in the way the work of the spirit. Paul, though having experienced vulnerability and fear and even shaming because of his proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified, he takes on the posture of humility. He gives up his own ability to convince anyone and he relies fully on Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul gives up on intellectualism. Read his work. He's still very much an intellectual. He still does thinking. He still allows his mind to work. It doesn't mean that he stops studying or stops trying to be a better evangelist. Rather, Paul simply knows that the only way that the message of Jesus Christ will actually transform is if the method is of the the same nature, of humility and vulnerability. The gospel just isn't a story. The gospel isn't just a story of us as Christians. It is the way that we live. It's not just a story that we listen to and we hear, but it is our story that we are participating in. It isn't just a message, it's also a method. It's not just a message that we proclaim, but it's a way that we live in the world, that we engage in the world. A cruciformed way of interacting with those who look to the story of Jesus and either they think it's really just silliness or just not worth their time. This text from Paul is why I don't quite understand why sometimes we as Christians get really concerned with something called apologetics Apologetics uh, is, is, you know, really kind of bending to the, the world's logic sometimes. Not always. Apologetics can be helpful. But a lot of times apologetics is really just relying on our own ability to logically explain the gospel. Uh, and to, to argue with atheists who say that there's no God at all. To say that, no, this is why there's God. Because this and this and this. And, uh, and logicking. Trying to, trying to use the world's logic to convince people. To, to use the right arguments, to use the right words, to convince people that, that God is real, that Christ is alive. Uh, that uh, the, the logic that we feel like we need to convince our, our relatives and our loved ones that, that Christ is real and that it matters and that, that there's things that we have to do. There's steps that we need to take in our lives for that to be real. We concern ourselves with having the right words the world does well to make us feel inadequate and insufficient to proclaim the gospel Well, I didn't get a seminary degree. I didn't go to college for this. My intention here isn't to shame us for for feeling concerned about that. I'm a preacher. This is like a profession for me, is to concern on whether or not I'm saying the right words, on whether or not I've written the sentences well enough for you to, to agree and be convinced. I know the feeling of inadequacy. I know the feeling of insufficiency. On a weekly basis, we deal with this as preachers and pastors. We spend hours preparing sermons and lessons, hoping that we're using the right logic. We're using the compelling stories to convince you. Paul, the greatest evangelist, one of the greatest theologians, struggled with having the right words. He was only successful whenever he gave it up. When he allowed himself to be vulnerable, when he acknowledged his vulnerability and his weakness. When he lived out the story instead of just trying to tell it really well. Yes, we need to take time to be discipled and educated and grow in our faith. We need to consider our words and our actions, make sure they line up. But ultimately, our call is to give up on having perfect logic and reason. Our call is to rely fully on the Spirit. 
The wisdom of God is revealed throughout Scripture and ultimately in Jesus Christ as vulnerability and humility. Paul was only successful because he surrendered himself to the story of Jesus. All of the heroes of Scripture are the same. The story was not just about Jesus, but it was about, it was about us as well. And our invitation into that story with Jesus. The story is not just about a historical man that lived a long time ago, but it's about us. The gospel is our story, and we can only know it well when not only when we proclaim it with our mouths, but we live it in the way that we interact in the world. And when we've surrendered ourselves and made ourselves humble, if we're not, acknowledged our vulnerability, if we're not, if we surrender ourselves to Jesus, who we just sang about a little while ago, the light of the world. Jesus, the light of the world, and not just Jesus, but us as well, being invited to be a part of his light. And so as we go into communion, this language of being brought into the story of God is so powerful. We're brought into the story of God by communion. That's what we say communion does for us. It brings us into the story of God. This is what communion does mysteriously and graciously. Communion is the very act of being brought into God's story. It's about vulnerability. Humility, dependence, that is the spirit of Christ. So as we